Hey everybody, this is Leighton Lillis and welcome to the Wish We'd Become Rockstars podcast where every week I get together with two of my old high school buddies, Mike and Ben, and we discuss music. Usually hard rock and heavy metal because that's what we were brought up on, but this week for episode three of season two, we discuss hidden gems from our rock and roll universes. Let's get it on. Let's kick today's episode off and, and we wanted to talk about hidden gems, those little uh, rarities that came out of the hard rock and heavy metal scene of the 1980s. And let's call it, let's let's take a little bit of a few liberties and take it up to 1992. And um, here we are, myself, Mike and Ben, and we've all been having a little think of it, some work on this. We've been trying to figure out anything out there that uh, could be of interest to, to all of us. And um, it's interesting, earlier tonight on YouTube, I came across a guy called Metal Jesus. And uh, Metal Jesus did this exact same thing, right? And we all laugh Shit. at Metal Jesus. Shout out to Metal Met- Jesus. Shout out to Metal Jesus in, in Seattle. Him and his mate, Hard Rock Tees or something like that, He, um, they did it. They did their top five hidden gems. And interesting enough, I think this guy is more into metal but he, he came up with a couple that, that are not my hidden gems, but I did appreciate them back in the day. And he came up with Man of War Fighting the World. Now, that was one that came on my radar early on. Did you guys ever hear of Man of War back in the day? Yep. Yeah. Yep. They, were, they were weird because they were, they were every bit of British heavy metal. And they had this album, Fighting the World. And we talked a few episodes ago about mixed tapes that someone's brother gave you. Someone gave me one with this band Man of War and the song Fighting the World. And anyway, Metal Jesus, he mentions that one. Um, they end up becoming the same category for me as Steel Panther or The Darkness. Like, bit of a joke, might like a song or two, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were weird. Like, they almost seem like this ridiculously British heavy metal, yet they were out in New York. And um, but another one, we, we had a talk about Def Leppard last week. He listed Def Leppard's High and Dry as one of his hidden gems. Um, and, uh, you know, I get it. He said, you know, everybody was always talking about the 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 more slicker Pyromanian hysteria, but he thinks High and Dry is worth a listen. He had a couple of Judas Priest albums, Ram, uh, Ram It Down and Painkiller. Um, Painkiller is, is a metal classic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I'm really sorry, Metal Jesus, but I, I didn't get your last one. The dog took a dump and I needed to um, needed to pick it up. But uh, <laughs> I, thought it was just, I thought it was just interesting that, um, you know, other people have done this. So uh, I don't know, ben, I don't know if you'd you... call Judas Priest hidden gems. They're not particularly hidden, those. They're quite out there, as you say. I think it was a, a classic well, album. Well, people were putting something back then, wasn't he? Well, yes, you know. Isn't, yeah, it, isn't yeah. it nice we live in a world now where he doesn't have to do that? And 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 now you go, who cares, man? Whoever cared? Like who cared? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the the homophobic thing. rednecks who are wearing ram it down t-shirts and not quite understanding the connotation <laughs> of what was on there. They cared. So, so what's a hidden gem? Is it something that was just a great album that never really got the mainstream, didn't get hold of it, or the masses didn't pick it up, or I think it's more the masses didn't pick it up. I mean, I always remember you, Ben, uh, you know, while everyone else was walking around with Guns N' Roses t-shirts, you wore an Aussie one, you know? 
it's there was always one guy and not that Aussie is by any means a hidden gem but you know like it's that one that you know when you go through somebody's we still love going through each other's CDs and cassettes there was always something where I'd go hey what's this and you go hey 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 let's have a listen and yeah something that probably didn't it, it sort of slipped under the, the radar, but guns guns got swept up. Guns got absorbed by the mainstream, and as a result of that, you got a lot of people who were really fly by night fans. They were they were fair yeah. weather fans. They weren't guys who would be talking like this thirty odd years later. And so, I don't know. I just I've got a problem with just going with you know yeah yeah yeah. I'll be one of the three million that wears that same shirt as all the rest of you dickheads. I think, yeah, I think yeah. a big um, a big part of that as well is coming from New Zealand like we do in, in the eastern suburbs of Auckland. New Zealand probably didn't have that same affinity with um, hard rock like, you know, like your Aussie and things like that who are obviously massive in other countries and even as close as Australia probably still yep. Had a much bigger following where we were. You didn't get as much of that, so yep. um, it took something like a Guns and Roses to break through to come over here. You know, whereas um, someone like that, who you know their legacy speaks for itself, but it, and could now go to New Zealand and probably sell twenty, thirty thousand tickets without thinking about it. But back then, it was a little bit more, a little bit different. Yeah. Hey, look, I, I think the other thing is. Sorry. I've always liked the idea of, I mean, it doesn't really apply now in the same way, but I remember going and buying a Lita Ford cassette. I'd never heard her before, but I'd read about her in Metal Hammer and Metal Edge, and I went, well, that sounds all right. I'll give it a go. Same with Doc and Back for the Attack. And I get it. A lot of people won't do that. They'll want to hear something first, but the curiosity's always got the better of me. I'm like, well, how bad can it be? If I don't like it, fuck it, $17. Who cares? Yeah. And, and, yeah, I still I mean, try yeah. and, and as you get older, you still try and maintain that where you go, well, you know what? If I don't like it, so be it. But don't get too boxed into. And how many times were you pleasantly surprised? I remember putting on Back for the Attack, first time I heard it, just going, wow, who is this guitarist? This is just so good. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I funny think you mentioned. I, uh, yeah. Funny you mentioned Lita Ford. She's she's on my list. We'll get to that. Yeah, no, but it's it's funny though. You just that was exactly the point I was going to mention is that in 1989 or 88, the only way you came up with a hidden gem was you literally had to go to the hard rock or metal section of Real Groovy Real Groovy Records or whatever your local record shop was, and go through and go the cover art or I've heard yep. about this by reading metal hammer or i and, know the producer yeah or some such thing and sometimes yep. you got it wrong um we used to have a local radio show that i used to listen to religiously in hamilton called the axe attack paul martin shout out to you yep. if uh, you yep. ever hear this one day but he used to play little bits and pieces and of course i often got sucked in now uh who would have thought when you've the first metallica song you heard was welcome home sanitarium that if you go and buy the album Master of Puppets, you're about to get your head literally pummeled. And <laughs> I was not into thrash metal, so I had this beautiful song that had a bit of a heavy thing to it. And likewise, um, what's the one of Ride the Lightning, Ben? There's a ballad on that as Beta well. It's Beta Black. I mean, these... So for me, I made a mistake with Metallica, and I've I since loved Metallica, but back then I heard one, and I heard... 
uh, Welcome Home Sanitarium. And that was my, I went and bought And Justice for All. When you first hear Blackened, I think it's the opening track, and then And Justice do, do, itself, do, it's, do, like, do, do, do. Yeah, it's like, this isn't, this isn't, yeah. So sometimes when in the search of a hidden gem, it would go probably the way, not the way you wanted, but half of the beauty was just in the discovery of something different, yep. you know, like that yep. was, um, yeah. When you found a beauty, and then it was about sort of passing it on to others, you know, like I used to delight in, uh, you know, when you had a great album, pass it on to you. And it sometimes didn't go well. Like the time I had Pretty Boy Floyd's Leather Boys with Electric Toys, Ben was none too impressed. <laughs> I'll, tell you an album, I'll tell you an album that stuck with me, and I wouldn't call it a gem by any stretch, but there's, there's aside from gems, there's those albums you've got a soft spot for, a soft spot for that aren't necessarily good. And one I borrowed off you late that I, and I remember listening to it lots when I was staying at my um, Nana's house in Golflands was Kiss Hot in the Shade. And yeah, there was three I or four that. great songs on there. There was um, Forever. Um, there was oh. two or three that are absolute. Perfect. Hide Your Heart. Hide Your Heart. Great. That's one of my favorite. And it's, I think it's a Diane Warren or a Michael Bolton. Or yeah, yeah. Oh, right. It was Michael catchy. Bolton was forever. He was. Um, it was poppy. It was catchy, but for some reason, it's a little too long as an album. But I yeah. probably listened to it more than most Kiss albums. I always remember when you did that, Ben, because it was one of those funny things where um, that was a long album, and of course sometimes you you I could never listen to it from top to bottom unless it was a classic. And I remember you coming back and going, "I really like this." I didn't like Silver Spoons. I quite liked Boomerang. I didn't like, and I was like, oh, God, okay, uh, maybe I better turn this damn thing over and listen to side two. And I remember you'd given it a good nudge, but um, yeah, for sure. Why don't you throw us a, why don't you throw us, or maybe you, Mike, throw us a hidden gem of yours. Just well, let, let's start this off. Geez, um, when, you, when you come to hidden, actually, just before we do that, I'm just going to do a little, because I'm on a, this might be uh, something you might have to fix in post, late, chop out later. just want to check. Can you hear me? Yep. Can you yep. hear me? Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Turning my head and I can be heard. I'm just on my, my work computer instead of my own laptop. Tommy, can and you hear me? Picks up the sound better. Um, when, when, the, when the topic of doing sort of hidden gems came up, I feel a little bit like a guy who's brought a knife to a gunfight with you guys because I probably didn't dig as deep as you guys did. I, I um, hit, my, hit uh, the stuff that I liked and, and didn't go searching into the sort of the B and C level stuff in, in hard rock as much as I would have. So I do have some things here that I've got. Um, and I'm Ben. I apologize in advance because I think most of these are just going to really rub you the wrong way. So, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's where I'm at. Um, I'll tell you what I'll, what I'll kick off with first, late. Um, because I know you've talked about these guys before as well, so we might have to sort of split them in half and pick an mm -hmm. album each or something. And that's enough is enough. Which um, album do you like? Well, I like the first two. So, and I imagine you're probably more of a fan of the first one than the second yeah. one. Yeah. So um, I mean, look at, hmm. let, let's I mean, split them down the middle. You can have the first one and I'll take the second one. How's that? Well, funnily enough, I left them off my list, actually, when I, when I remade it tonight. So you can have either or. 
Um, and, I, and I do want to give a, a shout out uh, to our friend Andrew Knight if he listens to this in England because Enough's Enough were his favorite band. And um, yeah, uh, I just want to share a few stories about Enough's Enough if I might. I mean, both excellent albums. Um, yep. A huge shame that Donny Vi and, and uh, Chips Enough you know, the two main guys can't see eye to eye anymore. And in fact, they've been having to go at each other recently on people's podcasts and that course, after all these yeah. years. Um, but the, I always remember my brother bringing it home. The first thing it had a peace, sign, peace sign on it and yeah. we had to listen to it. And yeah, it, it was, I mean, clever pop, I guess, you know, I, I mean, I, I, think, really, I think the thing with them the, was that if they'd, if they'd happened at another time, they probably would have just been this sort of power pop band. But because of when they occurred, they got pulled into the whole glam metal thing. And I don't know that it ever sat particularly well with them. But, the, I mean, the sound is kind of there, I guess. But I, I, I feel like they kind of... a version of a cheap trick as an example? They, yeah. Well, they're, yeah. They're, they're, from, they're from Chicago. From Chicago, and, yeah. And, and that, so they weren't exactly part of the scene. Then. No, they were not part of LA or New York, and I, I exactly am with you, Ben. They were a, an updated Cheap Trick, and because they people, would like to think they were like, more like Cheap Trick than any still, of those bands. People, I mean, I'm not familiar with them, but people still rate them. They still talk about them, as, and even when you read classic rock, a new album will come out, and people still talk about, you know, they're a melodic rock band there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the but fact that we're, we're, we're sitting here talking about their first two albums, they're, they're at a point now where they're got like 16 albums, you know, which, yeah. um, I mean, I haven't listened to, you know, 13 of them. So, no, um, no, they look, they did their first album and Strength, their second album, uh, certainly was a step up. Uh, look, yeah. they were another one of those groups. They never really got out of the clubs. I don't even remember them really getting any major coups, uh, you know, in terms of supporting massive acts back in the day. Um, they that they lost their guitar player through a drugs overdose quite young, Derek Frigo. Um, they had a, a, a drummer that looked more like a, 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 a woman, uh, Vicky Fox, and he ended up going on to uh, back, in, your, to back what's Vince your, Neil. What, what's your point? Mine was, he it was just be- a beautiful... He was just a beautiful, beautiful man. Beautiful man. That's right. He can look however he wants, can he? He can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like Steel Panther. Exactly That's like right. the bass player of Steel Panther. Yeah. Um, but no, look, I think you're right, Mike. I think I think the fact they were out of Chicago, they were more influenced by the likes of Beatles and Cheap Trick than are uh, probably Kiss and Aerosmith, maybe. Although that's yeah, it's probably um, all all in there a bit. I think when. You could have almost said to them at the time, so you guys like glam rock, and they go, yeah, 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 because they liked Cheap Trick and T-Rex and things like that, mm. not because they liked, um, you know, Motley Crue or whatever else. But um, I'm just sort of having a look on um, Spotify here, and if we go by the, the jury of the popular masses with their listens, um, Fly High Michelle is their top track with sort of 2.1 million no, yeah, I'm always remember. Fly High, no, Fly High Michelle was one of the first songs my brother was able to work out on guitar by ear that I didn't know. So he had great, uh, you know, thing of come and have a look at this. And that, that was his the opening riff of that song. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I always felt like a, um, 
I Could Never Be Without You was a cool song. Fantastic um, power ballad that would stand up against, you know, almost any other of the time. It was, yeah. you know, beautiful. And they did a they did a cool live video once, looked like in spring break in El Paso, Texas, where it just, I don't know, but it was the band doing their thing at the start of their career and looked pretty happy to be there. And unfortunately, drugs and all sorts of things. Yeah, they never I saw them twice in England actually, and both times they were without their without Donnie. And just, yeah, unfortunately not not as good as one would have thought they would have been. Um, no. So, yeah. The thing good I found choice, interesting though. about them as well was they um, their first two albums, which are the ones that probably anyone who knows them would know, were kind of more independent releases. I was going to actually guess, were they, were they major label albums and were they then dropped in the early 90s once? I think they laid their second album was Atco. Atco was the label, and it didn't do very. The second album didn't do very well. The first album, I think, did quite well. And the second album didn't do well, so they got dropped. But they got picked up by Arista Records, which was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. So that actually put them well. That's weird. Into the big machine. Atco was a subsidiary of Atlantic, who was eventually gobbled up by Warner's. Well, there you go. Interesting. um, Interesting, yeah. But now, look, I think yeah, no. um, the, those first two albums in particular they had some great tracks: "Fly High, Michelle," "Hot Little Summer Girl," "I Could Never Be Without You," "New String." I used to always like "New Things." Great. A uh, couple of off the second album, "Goodbye" was awesome. "Baby Loves You" was great. You know, they were yeah, really cool. good. And that second yeah. album in particular, I felt was quite strong. The first album had like three or four great songs and then some filler. That second album had a bit of substance to it too, you know. I don't know who produced yeah. it. I'm not sure. It was a step up for sure. I don't know. I, I can't tell you who produced them. Maybe no. yell it out after you've done a done a search there, Mike. I'm what have you little... been? Have you got Bo you... Hill? Bo Hill. He seemed to be the guy that produced loads of stuff. He was never a, he was never an a, well. I guess he was an A lister, but he he did some rat and he did some. He seemed to pop up all the time. Yeah. I'm finding a guy, it's not listing, it's listing the mixer and the engineer and stuff, but not the producer, which seems odd. Paul Laney mixed it. Oh, yep. I wonder, what, I wonder whether Chip himself uh, was Dan Haja engineer. Maybe they did. Maybe they self-produced. Got That's unusual for to, a debut unless you yeah. financed it yourself. Yeah, true. You're right. But again, Paul Laney mixed the second one. No producer listed. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, well, if any of you out there know who the producer of either of those Enough's Enough albums was, let us know in the comments section below. What are you, Ben? What's your first one, mate? Give us a hidden gem. You, you mentioned Badlands last week. Is that one you was, was on your list? It's going to be very predictable. It was always an album. When it came out, I remember there was quite a lot of acrimony with um, Jake leaving Ozzy's band and Ray Gillen had sort of been a fly-by-night in what was called Black Sabbath, but was essentially Tony Iommi and a bunch of session guys. What was the what was the great quote with um, Ozzy and Jakey Lee that Jakey Lee had to leave for health reasons because he made Ozzy sick? Yeah, that's it. Was that, was that that's it. Um, and it, it was just quite, everyone's hair was getting bigger and the production was getting slicker. And he came out with this quite back to basics bluesy thing that sort of, it, it was far more, 
had far more of a 70s feel to it. And Ray Gillen was a great frontman and vocalist who, at the time, it's, it's, it's strange to think now that four years later, he, he died of um, AIDS complication from AIDS. But at the time, he was this, he was almost that the, in the mold of, you know, the, the big strutting front man who's mm-hmm. with the with the vocal chops to back it up. Um, and I just the album, the, the tone of the guitar, it was quite dry. There wasn't it wasn't washed with heaps of chorus and stuff. And I just thought it was a cracking album. Um listening back to it, I think the second one was probably a better album overall. They never took off. They came out at a similar time to, you know, Wasp were reinventing themselves with the Headless Children. John Sykes' Blue Murder, which has got a dreadful mix, just far too wish-washy and reverby. Um, and lots of new stuff was kind of happening at that time. And I think it just got lost in amongst everything. And there was no, there wasn't a hit single that was MTV was going to pick up. But I, I still rate it as an album. And I think it's... Uh, just lost opportunity again they i guess they got two albums in they were dropped by their record label and then drugs and booze and egos broke up they broke up and then ray gillen promptly, promptly popped his clogs and you've, they, did, for, you've, you've forgotten who the the drummer you've got to mention who the drummer was of that well, particular the drummer, album the first one was eric singer future yeah. christmas drummer and then he left after album number one did and he guy called Jeff Martin, I think, became the drummer, who was the ex-vocalist from... Racer X? Racer X, yes. Which was Paul Gilbert's band that preceded um, Mr. Big. Yeah. Yeah. And... Interesting. Yeah, and I remember... And and I I got the album. My father bought it back from the States for me on cassette, and I bought a Guitar World magazine with an interview with Jake, and it was always an album that stuck with me as being... Can, can was I it, ask? Was it, yeah, you gave one. No, sorry, man. Um, was it songwriting, do you think, Ben? That Did they write internally or did they work with other people or the, just no, all within? No, they pretty much wrote internally, and I think it was basically, it was that classic thing of the guitarist brings in the riffs and the overall song, the vocalist then brings in the melody, and it, yeah, was, right. generally, it was generally the two front guys. Yep. And there was some shortcomings, like, it's not a bad debut. Yeah. Whereas, whereas by comparison, if I listen to um, one of the issues I've always had with, um, I guess, Dokken is George Lynch is phenomenal as a guitar player, as is J.K. Lee. But as soon as you take George Lynch away from um, Don Dokken and Jeff Pilson, who are great songwriters, George has got nothing to say. Yeah. He's, he's brilliant at his execution, but you try and get him to write something that's Good and melodic without one of those two guys, and he's stuck. Whereas Jake didn't have that problem. Yeah. No. But my question I had was uh, about Jakey Lee. I mean, you and I often used to have these discussions, Ben, because you were a huge Randy Rhodes fan, um, yeah. and then then you're a massive Zach fan, and I, I always felt a little aggrieved for Jake because I I actually think those albums that he was involved with, Bark at the Moon and Ultimates, and don't don't sit well in the legacy of Aussie's catalogue, but but I it was my gateway again. Bark at the moon, Bark come at on, moon that's one of the great. But yeah. I think that's considered one of the great albums. Whenever I think of that album, I think about how badly he was stitched up by Sharon, basically selling his rights. Yeah, but 
Yeah. And and the other thing was, did, did you ever investigate his his comeback album, Black Drag, uh, Red Dragon Cartel? Yeah, I bought I bought the first one when it came out, like, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And I was slightly underwhelmed. It felt like a pickup band, a bunch of yeah. hacks and Jake. And then I bought the second one and I was even more underwhelmed. And then you started to read things in the, the press about, again, he's in his 60s now, but into bands squabbling and fighting. And, and I just, he should have, I mean, he disappeared for years, but he's a guy mm. who, geez, if you're looking for a cracking guitarist in your band, I don't know if he's a really difficult guy or if he just, a lot of these guys put themselves in silly situations. Or I think a large part of it is that a lot of them are just so clueless from a business and economic standpoint. And, and like, I think that's, that, is, that is a thing. Um, I've heard that about John Sykes. I've heard that about Vinnie Vincent. You know, like these are guys that back in the early, mid to early, early to mid eighties were, could have probably just done whatever they wanted to do. But then a whole decade passes, they don't do an awful lot. And then you get the feeling that these guys don't know how to yeah. re-engage with the world, you know? I, I don't kind think of they do. I think the, the, a lot of these people are probably still living in 1985 and they just, you know, the world's moved on and they're, they're just sort of sitting on the sidelines watching it. You know? Yeah. Well, look, look I've got, I've got, I'm going to give you my first one, my first hidden gem, because I've got a story that kind of, is similar to that and that is uh the choir boys a little of what you fancy um you know funnily enough i've always thought that i was into all the la sunset strip bands and all that but here came this band that out of london very few did back in the day and they sounded more like i mean their singer spike was like more like rod stewart they had a, a stonesy yeah um small faces that was where they came from you know um but they had enough they had a few hits, albeit interesting enough, uh, seven o'clock in Hey You, which used to feature heavily on our on our music channel we had here in New Zealand, RTR, um, had piano, which was an oddity. Uh, having sort of honky tonk piano clunking along uh behind, uh, which which gave them that point of difference, I thought, um, from a lot of those other bands of of the time. Managed by Sharon Osborne. Uh, so they got given a lot of opportunities, and um, yeah, I, I think a bit of a hidden gem. They, yeah, um, I've got a story about them. But if you guys, did you guys were you familiar with the group at all? Or I've got the record on uh, vinyl in there. I bought it from that record store in uh, Howardville. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, and my story about that was when I was based in England. I I once booked a, a Rolling Stones tribute band called Stoned Again. And uh, we met at the airport to go to fly to Dubai. And I'm, I'm walking there and I think, holy shit, it's Guy Bailey. Guy Bailey was the guitar player who used to wear like a um, bit like Slash, a bit of a top hat. Um, top hat, yeah. Yeah, top hat and all the videos. And, of course, you know, the guy that I've been dealing with goes, uh, he's introduced, he goes, oh, Leighton, uh, you know, this is Guy, this is thing. And I said, oh, you know, Guy Bailey. Anyway, it was one of those things where I got to know this guy over about um, the five days we were away. And then I subsequently, um, I don't know, I guess we became friends. I certainly had a couple of nights partying with the guy and, um, you know, shared all sorts of all sorts of uh, funny uh, sort of experiences with him. But he was one of those guys, right? He had been 
this was now nine, uh, sorry, 2003. So he'd been out of the choir boys for about 13 years at that point, uh, 12 years. And I always remember him saying it was, it was quite remarkable. He, he had a, a reasonable house. And I always remember, I said, what did you get out of the band? And he says, well, look at me. It costs a fortune to look this, look, look like this. And I mean, he already had the, <laughs> he, he had all sorts of just, yeah. I always remember him saying it looks, it costs a fortune to look, look, look this bad or look like this. But he always said that, you know, I guess it was a thing that I didn't realize at that sort of level of naivety of being a fan is I would have thought they were all millionaires. You know, they, they all had videos and they played Donington and done this, that and the other. He said, look, I was the writer of all those main hits and the house you look, the house you're, you're standing in, this is what the band bought me. And he said it was only because Sharon, one day when we started, we all got our royalties, she literally said, right, a lot of you, this week, all you need to go and buy a house. Just go. Because if you don't, you're going to lose all your money. And he said, I'm just glad that I got, got this. But I, I just thought it was really cool, you know, like. Um, Jesus, is that good advice from a manager of a band to the band? To go members? buy a house? Oh, that's what I mean. Um, so this this is a story where band members actually got good advice from their band manager. Yeah. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah. I mean, that's. Well, because not, not long after that, you know, like um, that was after their first album, after a little of What You Fancy, she told them all to go and buy a house and they all did. And that was literally all Guy ended up getting left with. And so I always remember his partner at the time, I don't know if he's still with her, an Italian girl, she'd go and work as a waitress at the Hard Rock Cafe while Guy faffed around all day, you know, on demos. And just. And he's never, ever shown his face. But interestingly enough, uh, one party I was over at his place with um, a couple of the original members of the, uh, of the um, choir boys came over and joined us. And um, they were looking to start the band again. But basically... Although Guy was one of he Guy and Spike, the singer, were like the main guys back in the day. They literally didn't want Guy, um, so they were ready to kind of hang with him as a mate. But they never invited him back, and the band sort of carried on gigging around the UK and Europe for the last twenty years yep. since. And I often wonder what Guy's doing now. Yeah, I always remember him saying, <laughs> "I said, well, look, Guy, he told you a great you story about CC Deville, I recall." Yeah, uh, he told me a lot. Of, he told me he told me a lot of great stories. I mean, he told me of there's a there's a hotel in um, there's a hotel in New York where all the bands always stay. Would you know what what it is, uh, Ben? It's like a folklore thing. They always go there. Yeah, it could be. Uh, but look, he told me stories of of literally it was every bit of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But literally, Spike had uh, had all these. Ladies come and join them, and not one of them, all of them were all too drunk, and not one of them could actually do anything with any of them, so that all the ladies all left again. And um, I can't think of the, 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 the CC story. Do you want to uh, enlighten me? No, I won't in this forum because we are recording. We are, yeah. <laughs> it was. It, oh, it was, it's it, starting it, to come back to me. Was it something? Yes. I think so. I think yeah, I remember yeah. it now. Yeah, too many substances having a negative impact on your bowel movements. And and having to put, yeah. So that would have been when CC, yeah, I remember it now. 
when CC was in his House of Horrors, uh, which around the time when um, he had the pink hair on the NTV show, and yeah. Uh, but look, interesting, interesting group, interesting band. Um, they've managed to carve out a living. I don't know whether Guy has, but the rest of them have ever since, uh, certainly around England and Europe, and um, pretty well loved modest, band. Probably a modest living. I can't imagine they'd be. Nah, I think now just having to be in the clubs uh, must must be hard. But um, yeah, uh, I always remember a guy saying to me he, he wasn't able to tell his mother that he'd actually left the band and that he wasn't doing much anymore because she she was so proud of her boy had um, had been to Castle Donington and you know managed by Sharon Osbourne and he's over in LA recording and yeah. Um, Anyway, sorry for letting all your things out, Guy, if you ever listen to this. But, uh, yeah, um, that's one of my hidden gems. Anyway, a little of what you fancy by the, the choir boys. Nice. Mike, you're up. Okay. Hmm. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, drop into one that sort of been name-checked before, possibly by accident. Lita Ford. And, and my Which thing was- album? Well, this this is the thing, right? So she had, yeah, a lot of people would probably consider her a bit of a one-hit wonder. She had that one big song, Kiss Me Deadly, off the first album. Um, and I don't particularly rate the first album other than that song. There's not much else on there that I enjoyed. Well, that, it's, that was second or third album. Third album, yeah. Jeez, was it? You're talking about Lita, the Lita album. The Lita album. With yeah. closed minds forever and all that, yeah. There was the Bride Walk Black before that and something else, I think. D- dancing. Yeah, okay, don't know. Anyway, carry on your story, Mike. Well, if I feel like I've, I've lost all credibility. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the next two albums that she put out. And the next, uh, Stiletto and Dangerous Curves were the two albums that Interesting. came after that. Um, Possibly even Dangerous Curves more than Stiletto, and I don't think that either of them did particularly well, although she did get nominated for a Grammy for um, Best Female Rock Vocal, and that might have been a a thin category in the early 90s perhaps, but um, for this song called Shot of Poison off Dangerous Curves, which is Dangerous Curves was... um, very, very sort of pop hard rock, you know. She, I think she'd got in some uh, external songwriters to craft some some hits and was sort of looking to, I think, um, Stiletto, she'd sort of been buoyed by the success of uh, her third album, the self-titled album, um, and thought that, you know, things would just keep going and it possibly didn't do as well. And so then on this next one, Dangerous Curves, I think she sort of pulled out a few extra stops and got some external writers in to write some sort of more mainstream hits and things like that. But I rate both of them. They're both pretty cool, you know? Yeah. And, of course, um, they they had, um, she did a cover of Alice's Only Women Bleed yeah, on yep. one on, of those, wasn't on it? On Stiletto. It was on Stiletto, the first one. Yep. Yeah, yep. and Mike, why don't, why don't you go on and tell the story quickly of, of uh, the time we all got to meet Lita Ford? We we did get to meet Lita Ford. She came out, um, I don't even know what year that would have been. It must have been 92? Yeah. I was going to I say think. 91, but it could be either really, couldn't it? Jeez, I don't know, man. I reckon I reckon it was 90, early 92, maybe. Um, 
where she... I was going to say it could be a bit, yeah, a bit later, but maybe it was that. I don't know. Yeah. I've got I the poster like, in my other room. I can have a look. I feel like it was between those two albums, but um, they were they were actually pretty close together. They were sort of 90 and 91, so maybe, maybe it was 91, um, where she'd been brought out on one of the... Uh, a guitar sponsorship had brought her out to do um, some sort of record store endorsements and things like that. So it wasn't um, it wasn't coming out touring or anything like that. She was basically out out there for the guitar manufacturer to talk about how great the guitars were. But I remember crate, sitting, crate amplifiers. Was it crate amplifiers? There you go. And she came yeah. out and she brought her in inverted commas bass player Jimmy Tappers. His name was, yeah, and it was what very. Was well, it was very clear that um, his skill on the bass wasn't the reason that he was here. It was uh, his other skills that were the. And he's, he's passed away now, sadly. Are oh, um, you kidding? It? Yeah, yeah. Um, some years ago, I just his name was Jimmy Tavis, T A V I S H. Tavis. Tavis. And I always remember he wore he wore a Pittsburgh Pirates hat and. I don't I was, know that he ever appeared on an album with her, did he? Or I don't think so. No, no. Her bass player on those albums was um, Hugh oh, McDonald. The stand-up. No, was it? No, no it was, it was um, what's his name? Bissonette. What's that guy's name? Greg Bissonette. Matt 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 Bissonette. Matt Bissonette. Yes, yeah. He was the bass player on those albums. So Jimmy Tavers never, never got a look in, but he did get a free junket to Australia and New Zealand. Via Crate Amplifiers, yeah. but we remember going to see them because first we saw and saw them in the record store, and that was just one of the most ridiculous things well, in the world. It was, we it was the, rock, the rock shop. It was yeah. the rock shop, and um, we were just sort of standing around, and there weren't a lot of people there. And then you just turned around, and there she was, just standing there, this you know, right next to us. And you go, "Oh, hello, hello," and yeah. I'd never had that type of unfettered access to what I would have considered a rock star at that point. You know, no. it, was, it was crazy. No. And then we did go to the, they did like a showcase. Um, I can't remember the name of that pub in was Auckland. It the Glue Pot. The Glue, Glue Pot. That was the one. Um, and she'd be sitting there trying to display the amp oh, and the feature of this. And people would just be sitting there going, sing us a song, Lita, sing us a song. Um, which eventually she did, but and poor old Jimmy Tavis is sitting there behind her trying to play along, and he clearly doesn't know the song that he's trying to play, and she's trying to play Kiss it's Me like Deadly. like watching a bad news documentary. Oh, it's just, it's <laughs> ridiculous, you know. It's, what are you doing yeah. there? If you Surely on the way over you could have learned the three chords for that song. Yeah. But I also remember because, you know, you'd line up and get things signed and all this sort of stuff, and there was a guy there with a bass guitar and she signed it and Jimmy signed it because, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, sign it. And I remember seeing an ad in like the trading post a few years later of this guy trying to sell his bass guitar and it said in the ad, signed by Lita Ford and her bass player, Jimmy T- and it's like, well, I don't know if that's a selling feature, my friend, but. Yeah. Uh, after no, that, I, she I, wandered off, yeah. right? She disappeared off the grid and she married Jim Gillette, who was the skinny yep. guy from Nitro. He yep. bulked mm. up and mm. they ended up living on some island somewhere and then it all went, for years, it was like a paradise. Then it all went horribly wrong and apparently she was essentially captive. Well, well yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a I tricky story, were, that one. Yeah. 
I think I think they made a lot of he made a lot of money as a, yep. a landowner and whatnot. But yeah, to my knowledge, she's never been able to see her two boys ever again after they broke up. Some it was so all it's a all a bit messy, all a bit weird and all a bit messy. And um <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, that, that was certainly a cool thing, meeting leader. I probably should have just left it at the meet and greet because it, it was epic finally seeing her. And um yeah, I always remember after that um that uh clinic i always remember your words ben because i'd never used this word before but you're like i don't know guys it was just decidedly average <laughs> i always remember that, yeah. that that was your term decidedly average and it was like well, it was but it was ten dollars to get in and it, yeah whatever um but um yeah no good yeah. good hidden gem anyway mike but those those two albums in particular are worth a look if you haven't come back to them they're, they're very um uh, pop rocky, but they're not they're not badly produced, and uh, you know there's some, there's some nice hummable tunes on there. I like them. You know, look, like I think Lita had a certain kudos amongst the the bands of the day. I mean, look, Lemmy and Nikki Six don't just write with anyone, and both of them contributed <laughs> to that Lita album. Uh, she got on the Bon Jovi New Jersey European tour. You know, I mean. I think because her heritage in the Runaways, she had an authentic, she had a a bit of kudos amongst the rest of them. Perhaps I mean, yeah, yeah. she's had an well, interesting and, career, and she was, you know, one of very few female voices in in a man's world at that time. You know, yeah, yeah, um, and made it work for her, made it, uh, yeah, without Definitely. sucking. You know, yeah. Throw us another one, Ben. What's another one from you, mate? I'm going to go with something outside the genre. Duran Duran, Notorious, their 1986 album. Jesus um, Christ, Ben. <laughs> it, it was the first one they did as a three-piece. They went off after their massive world tour of 84. They went off and they did uh, The Power Station with Robert Palmer, Tony Thompson, and then the other guys did Arcadia. And Notorious mm -hmm. was produced by... Um, Niall Rogers, yeah, and it still sounds and, and it's got far more of a a, a funky feel. I, I rate it well, way better than Rio, or um, it still sounds really good. Um, there's a handful of songs there that were the titles. They took the titles from um, Hitchcock movies, so Notorious, Vertigo. Um, there's another one as well that escapes me, but yeah. So who, who was in the band at the time? Did you say there's only three of them? It was Simon Le Bon, Nick Rhodes, and John Taylor. And He's a great bass player. He is a great bass player. And they got, I think, Steve Ferroni, who went on to play with Tom Petty's Heartbreakers, black guy from um, Brighton in, in the south of England. I think he was drumming with them then. And I couldn't tell you who the guitarist was. I know that Warren Kirkarillo was with them later on, but... Don't know. Let's have a look. Who the Niall Rogers produced Bob Ludwig mastering. Yes, yeah, Steve Ferroni drums. Oh, Warren Kirkarillo guitars. There you go. You heard of Warren Kirkarillo? What, what, what else has he been, been in? Right? It was the last thing that the year before because people pumping. So '84 they had that Arena album with the Wild Boys. Um, next year yeah. in between the solo things they did the James Bond theme, which was killer, and then. 
Notorious came out and it just didn't do the business. And it wasn't, it, it, it's such a strong album. So the, the theme, so uh, the title track, Skin Trade, which is more of a sort of a funk feel to it, um, American Science. And I don't normally say this, but some of the remixes were really good as well. I think the third or fourth single, Meet El Presidente, had a really good singles mix, which I recall seeing on Ready to Roll or something. I have to say, Ben, I'm, I mean, a really interesting choice. I mean, um, I, I've, I watched a lot of John Taylor's, he did a lot of Twitter or Facebook, like he'd break down his songs um, yep. around the first lockdown in America. Um, yep. And I, I watched it religiously. I just found him a fascinating bass player. And I have to say, uh, yep. holding my hand up, probably overlooked by myself because I, I always just thought of Duran Duran as being a cheesy pop band, but there, there was so much cleverer. You know that. what? It sounds cheesy, but when you hear them play, I've got a, a live video from when they did that reformation maybe 15 or 16 years ago. And you, you, there's a couple, I think what he's playing in, um, maybe it's Careless Memory. And you're listening to it and you go, wow, he's actually a very, very funky bass player. And of course, when you think funky bass player, you don't immediately think John Taylor. No, no. Yeah. I mean, there was a side project that he's involved in LA with the guy from the Six Pistols, isn't he? Or Duff and Matt, Neurotic Outsiders. Yeah, Neurotic yeah. Outsiders. Right. Yeah. Is it? Is it? Are they ever recorded, or is it just a, a fun thing where they'll go they and play an the rock They put an album out, and I actually think Mike gave it to me. I think Mike gave me a copy of it years ago when, actually, you were probably at Sounds at the time. It was mid nineties. It was sort of. I'll, I'll claim credit for that, for sure. I'm making some assumptions here, but I, I would suggest that perhaps they got together because a bunch of them met in rehab or something like that. Because <laughs> they, yeah. they were all sort of trying to clean up their act about then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. No, interesting choice, interesting choice. Performed um, poorly, should have been far bigger than it was, but I guess, you know, they were so big that there was only one way to go. And... Well, that, that's the trick, isn't it? I mean, my my intro to Duran Duran is I've got two older sisters who thought they were it in a bit in, um, you know, 82. But that wasn't necessarily to do with the quality of the songs. It was because, you know, Simon Le Bon was good looking. Well, they were all good looking, you know. Um, didn't they own I MTV? Like, didn't they come along? Oh, with the right man time? alive. They, they understood image and they just... Yep. Yep. Yeah. If you if but, you could be in a band in 1982 and take over the world, there's worse choices than that. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think you're right. I think I think that um, probably did. Uh, it hurt their credibility. It, it worked. For, it worked for them for a while, but it did. It hurt their credibility, and it meant that people didn't look deeper a lot of the time. Yep. They said, "Oh, that's a great song," but they didn't. And when you do go back and listen to some of that, even that sort of 81, 82 stuff, it, it's it's you know, it's pretty cool. You know, there's some crazy stuff happening in there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Good choice. And look, okay. they're still around. You know, they're still around. They're still going. That's That doesn't happen by accident. No. Yeah. Look, I, I just think probably at that point in their career, I always remember Simon Le Bon turned up here on a round-the-world yacht race. That's I right. I just think they're... Um, 
they were <laughs> drum that's right and didn't his, uh, didn't his boat flip upside down in, New- in yep. Auckland or something flipped over and that's he got right. stuck underneath yeah. it for a while I, I mean, it must be a weird time in a band where they've they've almost reached their zenith, and then they everyone just goes and does their own thing. And it must just be awesome, though. Twenty years later, coming back and having that that audience there, and yeah, off they go. Um, okay, I got one here now. Um, Tesla Mechanical Resonance. Uh, that's the debut album. And just just to quickly go back to your Lita thing, though, Mike. I am sure Lita was her third album. Interesting enough, on Spotify, on Spotify, they started Lita, so maybe the other albums never got released. No, because Spotify, I think there's some issues with her stuff. Stiletto's not on there at all. I don't think there's um, some tracks that made their way in because they're on a best of or something. So there's there must be some things going on. It's the third album because our friend Wikipedia number one was Out for Blood in '83. Yeah. 84 was Dancing on the Edge. Yeah, Dancing then, on the Edge. And then Lita was number three, and that was 1988. Right. There we go. Right, there you go. Right, so that settles it. Okay, so my one's Tesla Mechanical Resonance, and um, I always think Tesla are one of those oft-overlooked bands. I think Eddie Trunk uh, agrees with me. They had every opportunity to be an epic, uh, successful arena act. Uh, they, by by virtue of the fact they were managed by the same management team as Def Leppard and Metallica, I think. Q, Peter Q Mench Prime. and all that. Q Prime. Yeah. Um, but it just didn't didn't go to that next level. They spent their whole time hanging out in America, trying to break America. They had a few big, uh, almost hit songs on their next album, uh, the Great Radio Controversy. Um, so they kept going on this whole thing of Nikola Tesla. Uh, but anyway, the Great Radio Controversy had a thing called The Love Song. But it wasn't until they did a version of uh, someone's song, Changes. Uh, is it Changes or? Uh, no, Time. Uh, uh, what's the I song? I know what you mean, but I can't quite. The, they did an acoustic. on the live album, right? The- changes they did, they did a, is Bowie. Changes. Tom- uh, no, no. Changes is Bowie and Time is Tom Waits. Is that the one? No, it's um, Signs. Signs so was the song. It. There yep. you go. Um, and I, maybe someone else can tell me who wrote Signs. I, I want to say it was um, Grand. What album? What album was it on? It was on. It was on Five Man Acoustic Jam, Acoustical Jam. Um, but yeah, just a really kick-ass band, and and a really just an honest album. That it starts with a song called Easy Come, Easy Go, coming at you live. Uh, when I saw them in London at Shepherd's Bush Empire, they started with Coming At Your Life. Just great musicians and Jeff Keith, the singer, excellent uh, voice. I just don't think they were sexy enough for the time. I, I, and I, I agree. At a, at too, a time they when were, they were too workmanlike and they didn't, yeah. They didn't dress, they didn't dress like John Bon Jovi and they didn't look like, have hair like Joey Tempest and they didn't have, yeah, they were just, just, they had every opportunity, but maybe, just maybe, they didn't have that sex appeal. And, and in the 80s, I reckon that was just a huge thing. So I think now they're probably hugely popular with more guys than girls um, because I think people really, appre- you know, us guys appreciate possibly the musicality, whereas a lot of their female fans probably went by the wayside after 
after 1988. So, yeah, Tesla Mechanical Resonance was my hidden gem. You know, one track, one album of theirs I always liked, and I think you brought it back from overseas, was their third one, Psychotic Supper. And yeah. I remember, I can't remember who produced it, but it was, it had a beefier sound to it. Um, and that was one that always stuck with me. Well, uh, yeah, I've just, I read the autobiography of Brian Wheat, the bass player. And um, the one thing I didn't realize is how much drugs were playing into that whole thing. They always looked like this band of just workman like guys, but they were all, there was some bad drug stuff going on. Um, I don't know who produced Psychotic Supper. Um, but I know they were going for broke. I know they they really wanted that one to be their, their breakthrough and it just did not happen. It was kind of like Winger's second album or Extreme's fourth album. It just died a death. Yeah, it was just the wrong mm. time. Yep. Um, and they'd, they'd played their cards, you know, and that was that. Um, yep. So Signs was written by, um, well, it was originally recorded by a band called the Five Man Electrical Band which is odd that it then turned up on their uh, five-man five acoustical, acoustical jam. jam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the writer is um, credited, the surname is Emerson, and I'm wondering if that's... Keith Emerson. Emerson Lake and Palmer, sure. No, because that would be Keith Emerson. No, Les Emerson. There we go. So mm. just shares a, oh, shares I, a surname. Maybe it was just one of those instances where there was a song that no one really knew was a... A cover, um, but it was just a well-written song they did a good version of. But um, yeah, yeah, yep. that, that that was a little bit of their breakthrough. Um, but uh, they had every opportunity to make it big, and just something didn't quite connect. Mm. And but again, they seem to they seem to still tick on. You know, they're still there's enough there, obviously, to keep them putting things out. Man, there was a well, ton of bands who fall into that category. Like, you know, if we put our heads together, you think of how many bands coulda, shoulda, woulda. It was a, it yeah. was a, it was a very crowded marketplace, and there was loads of bands pumping stuff out that just never got out of the starting gates. Really, Salty Dog, do you remember them? Or um, the band that Johnny Depp was in that came out of Florida, Rock City Angels. Um, yeah, geez, the list goes on. They, and they all sort of came out with big advances and one of the day's producers doing their stuff and here today, got, they didn't even get a hit single. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I um, I listened to a podcast the other day with David Lowy, uh, who's who's behind um, yep. um, what's the group. Uh, what are they called? Dead, Dead Daisies. Dead Daisies. And, and Eddie Trank said to him, you know, you're a very successful businessman. You've got a lot of wealth. What, what do you make of the music industry? He says, um, he, he had a saying, he said, um, high risk, low return. And yeah. he said, it's just, it's just not, um, it's not a good business proposition being in the rock and roll business. Uh, but he does it for other reasons. He's doing it for, um, self-satisfaction and uh you know um it's not the end of the world yeah yeah but uh it's interesting just hearing that from a guy that's very successful outside of the business and that, that's a summation of it yeah it's terrifying really isn't it you know yeah. i don't think anyone got into it well you sort of think of money as being a 
hopeful byproduct. But yeah, it's not really why you should get into music. But there you go. James Simmons that, would beg to differ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, it, it just sort of seems like that idea of, um, you know, getting together with your friends and practicing in your garage and annoying your neighbours and being shit because you don't know what you're doing but learning and making your way through it and then, you know, getting a gig at your local pub and then working your way out from that ladder seems to have just disappeared. It's not there anymore. No one's interested in going out and seeing who their local band is, you know, and, and there's too many people at the top end of the tier that are being forced into that playing in these little clubs and stuff that you don't have to settle for your local band. You can go and see some freaking quality. I'll you know, tell you one, for of not downsides, much. one of the downsides in recent years when you go to have a beer somewhere, it's cheap for the pub to employ these people, but Ed Sheeran's got a lot to answer for because you've got some <laughs> twit in the corner with an acoustic guitar and an yep. array of foot pedals and loopers and samplers. And you yep. think, shut up, you're all interchangeable and you're all as bland as one another. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For and sure. And playing those types of songs, you know, there's, yeah. Um, yeah. you have to dig around to find something that's that's truly inventive, you know. And every now and again, Definitely. you do. I mean, there's plenty of talent out there. There's no shortage of talent. That's never gone away. Um, but the avenues with for it to come through, you'd think, because um, the record company system was a meat grinder, you know, yep. and that. You know, you'd argue there, there were there were pros and cons to that as to how that worked. So there should okay. be pros and cons to this. and mm. But you struggle to find them a little bit, you know. I always think the hardest thing is, um, you know, we were just talking earlier um, before we started the recording about the Beatles really floundering after the loss of Brian Epstein. And yeah. I think that's one thing that theatre do incredibly well is nurturing talent from the bottom up putting an infrastructure around talent. Uh, I think the theatre industry have got it really right. I think the rock and roll industry, it really is the wild west still. I don't think, um, I don't think there's the support out there because um, there's no. no money in it at the start, you know, so there's no money, there's no funding, uh, unless you've got a dad that really believes in you, I, I guess. Um, but it's then, all too uh, yeah. Then you come back to that comment, high risk, low return. It's a bit different if you're a university graduate who's a wants to, you know, you're a computer programmer and your dad will spot you twenty thousand dollars for a startup. You go, yeah, well, that, that kind of makes sense. Where you go, yeah, right. So you want to go and live in a van and play shitty clubs and yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. Yet, yet, yet weirdly enough, you know, it's kind of worked out okay for for me. And I mean, you you got a living out of it for a while too, Mike. It just, you know, it um. That was, was a long time ago, my friend. It was, was a long time ago, yeah. Different, yeah. Different, uh, different rules to the game back then. Yeah, for sure. Throw us another hidden gem, anyways. Who, who's up? Is it you, Mike? Look, I think it's me, and th this is probably the one where I have to say, Ben, I apologise in advance. It's not so much a hidden gem as a. Millie a Vanilli. It's a casualty of war. It's it's probably your equivalent to Millie Vanilli. It's Warrant. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm going to throw Warrant's third album, Dog Eat Dog. 
Yeah. Which I think is fucking great, quite mm-hmm. frankly. I think it's, it's um, you know, their first two albums I enjoy a great deal. I call myself a fan. But the third album I just think is um, a, a cut above. And it killed them, you know, that album. It, it, it ended their, their run. They saw the writing on the wall. They knew what was coming and they tried to adjust um, what year did that album come out, Mike? Jeez, it'd be, I'm going to say... 92 or 93. Wait, my question oh, oh. is, was it post-Nevermind? Was, was it oh, it was definitely post-Nevermind, post, yes. They were trying to adjust. Absolutely. Yeah. They, the, it, it had all hit by the... Yeah, it was August 92 that came out. Um, but it, it's still, it, it's a well-produced album. I think um, Michael Wagner produced it, and I think he probably did their first two as well. I think it was the same guy the whole time. But um, the songwriting just jumped up a little bit. Janie Lane, I think he put his big boy pants on a little bit and went, I'm not going to write about um, girls and drugs anymore. I'm just going to, you know, do something with a little bit more substance. There was still a little bit in there, but it, it just, it just, pushed all the buttons for me. It had it had something that was a bit chunkier on there. There were a couple of songs on there. I remember playing it for my, my friends at the time, and they go, oh, it doesn't sound like Warrant. And so I went, all right, and I skipped through to, like, track six, and went, there you go, there's one that sounds like old Warrant. And I'm, oh, yeah, great, cool. Um, but it had some good ballads on there. It had some, uh, you know, it was just, it's, it's a fantastic album. I, I always love the song April 2031 because, and it's not that far away, April 2031. It's about 10 no, years away yep. because it, it was Jamie Lane's thought into the future of what his daughter, what life would be like for his daughter, uh, what, 50, like, 40 years, 50 yeah, years po- on. Post-apocalyptic future. Yeah. Um, the first two tracks on there, Machine Gun and Hole in My Wall, are just these sort of, they're, they're sort of Warren does grunge a little bit. Those two, and they're pretty good. April 2031 is absolutely stonking track. The next one, Andy Warhol was right, I really like as well, which is the song about sort of um, the the dark side of fame, you know. Um, there's another one in the middle there, The Bitter Pill, which is, um, you know, there's some orchestra and some choral stuff in it. It's, you know, Maybe he's trying to do a day in the life. I don't know, something like that. But it's just it's just a cool, you know, it, and it's got some standard warrant stuff on there. There's a track called Bonfire, another one called Inside Out, which are very warranty tracks, but it's got some nice ballads on it. Let It Rain, said Teresa. It's a, it's a cool album. I just think it. Just, just, just a total casualty of the timing. Um, well, and, and Warrant could not have been more synonymously tied in with yep. hair metal by design. You know, they've got no one to blame but themselves for that. Um, I think it was a similar time where the stories had come out that um, maybe they weren't playing everything on playing. the records, yeah. um, which turned out not to be true. I think what what the true story was that they didn't write the solos. They came, they got someone to write solos for them and then they played them, I think was... You know, what had who, actually happened. Who know. was this? I mean, some of those bands were just, they were just annihilated. Remember the death of Winger, who were serious pro mm. musicians because of Beavis and Butthead. Beavis and Butthead said Winger sucks or Winger. Yeah. What was yeah. The, and Killed they, it. Yeah, Beavis had a t shirt on. From being a, a, a respected band who made the covers of 
musicians' magazines to a laughing stock, just wrapped up in same thing. Oh, you're all part of this scene. Yeah. Well, it was, I, mean, I think Warren when, were... when you're... Sorry, man. When? No, I think Winger was not only that, it was there was a video of either Nothing Else Matters where Lars is throwing a dart at Kip Winger's photo. I think there's like two things <laughs> that, um, that, that that just meant this Winger was uber non not cool. I'll tell you what, they do have a song called 17, don't they? I suspect that would be frowned upon these days. Yeah, it could yeah, well true. be. Well, there's there's plenty of things back then that would be frowned upon. Now and uh, our old mate Gene Simmons are probably the first one I'd have to line up for punishment. Um, but you know, Warren, Warren were technically relative. You know, Janie Lane could have a set of pipes on a man. He could sing. He could write songs. The guitar players were pretty good. Anyway. Yeah, they weren't the good. The guitar players were not innovators by any stretch. They they were followers, um, but they 100%. were um, but they 100%. were. Um, Capable. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Capable, yeah. Throw us another one, Ben. What's another one of your hidden gems, mate? Black Sabbath Dehumanizer. Tony oh. Martin? No. Or... So they did Ozzy left the back. Ozzy was chucked out and they did Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules and reinvented themselves with Dio. He then left, went off, did a solo career, and they had a succession of People, Glenn Hughes, uh, Ian Gillen did an album. Glenn Hughes came in, totally coked off his head and did an album. Then they got Ray Gillen, but he was replaced for the vocals on The Eternal Idol by Tony Martin, who then did the next three albums. I think he did The Headless Cross and then Tour. And it was diminishing returns. By that stage, everyone was saying, you're not Black Sabbath, you're just one guy. And... Um, Years later, I found out that Tony Iommi actually had to go to Aussie to borrow some money during that time because, you wow. know, basically couldn't fund recording costs and so on. So he had hired guns. One of the hired guns for the Eternal Idol was Eric Singer prior to oh, okay. Yeah. Um, loads of, and it was all just a bit of a shit show. And then they made a bit of a rumble in the late 80s in the UK with the Headless Cross tour didn't do so much in 1990 in 91 they got back together with Dio and Giza and Vinnie Peace. they went to Rockfield Studios in Wales and they had Mac who was the producer of Latter-day Queen and they did this um, album Dehumanizer which is quite it's a heavy album and I guess the best known song on it appeared in um, Wayne's World um, yeah. Time Machine, when they're racing towards the church, I think it is. Oh, okay. But it's a good album. It's, it's quite a, it's a heavy album, but it's got a pristine production. It's, um, it only lasts, and they actually open for Aussie on a couple of shows on his No More Tours tour. I, I'm, I'm confused, though. When was Dio's Lock Up the Wolves? Like, did he, did he? It was, so that was 89 or 90. And he did one album with that young guy, Rowan Robertson. And yeah. then I think, again, diminishing returns. And obviously the two parties got together and went, right, let's. And so it was a big production album. It, it, and it was, it was one of the first CDs I bought, I think, when it came out. Interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't know the album. It's, it's worth a listen, if, not, if for nothing else than... Um, Dio's vocal performance on songs like I or Too Late. 
There you go. You've got me with Wayne's World. You piqued my curiosity. See, you can see the Murph Mobile cruising down the road now. Did you ever see Dare Lively? I did. I did once. Ben, I saw him in Norwich. Um, he did. He did the entirety of the Holy Diver album for a video at the Astoria the following night. But he was doing saw, a UK tour. I, I've got that on DVD somewhere. So I and saw it, him the night the Rudy, night before that. Rudy Sarzo was on bass. Rudy Sarzo, Doug Aldrich on guitar. That's right, because um, Doug Aldrich had left and he came back momentarily for that. For that and. A guy called Scott Warren, who just because you're talking about yep. Warren there, Brad. Um, sorry, Mike. Um, Scott was it, Warren what, what was, was it, a touring keyboard player. Yeah, I know Scott. And was it Vinny or was it? Um, um, oh, I was thinking of another drummer. No, I can't remember who the drummer. No, no. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Vinny Vinny Appice, Yeah, which is a, there's a little bit of trivia there. It's funny you just called him Vinny Appice. For brothers, Carmine refers to himself as Carmine Apice and Vinny, Vinny Apice. I, I didn't uh, know that, and I've always wondered Jesus. about it. A little bit of trivia. Yeah. Did you know that, Ben? Okay, I, I thought you must. Well, I, um, no, I didn't. I wouldn't say I know it, but I've heard them pronounced differently, and I'm, I, I've kind of thought, oh, well, it must just be. It's like some people call him Neil Peart, when in actual fact it's Neil Peart. Sorry, Neil oh, Peart, okay. but it's Neil Peart. Neil Peart, yeah, oh, yeah. But if they're two brothers pronouncing their names differently, that's uh... crazy. Yeah, yeah. You'd think it's one or the other, but um, yeah. Now um, we we know what they fight over at Christmas, don't we? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> you know, true. when you said that, all I could see was a scene out of Step Brothers. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's apathy, you motherfucker. No, it's a piece. <laughs> God damn it! I will um, eat your right. balls, you bastard. I'm going to throw one at you guys. Uh, I don't think either of you uh, are aware of it. Maybe you are. Um, band called MSG, Macaulay Schenker Group, and the album was Perfect Timing. Yep. You know it, Ben? Um, you know what I remember about that era? Those hair extensions Michael Schenker had. Yeah. I mean, it was ridiculous. Michael Schenker, no, no I will say, I wasn't aware at the time of Michael Schenker's history um that he had this whole pedigree yeah with ufo and the michael schenker group but uh on our local music channel or it must have been on a heavy metal compilation video came the song give me your love off the perfect timing album i bought it um a flawless album uh, but i don't think i just think you know maybe it's a little bit like um what we just were talking about with tesla Maybe, uh, although Michael Schenk had these ridiculous hair extensions that went all the way down, and um, but but maybe this singer Robin McCauley, he had he had a weird sort of fro with you know like curly fro with kind of yeah um, maybe just didn't he didn't stack up against some of the other pretty boys of the era, but they were they were more than that they were more like a Dio or a um, oh, Judas Priest, but not really you know it was a riff based rock. It was, um, they, Michael Schenker's always had very, and Kirk Hammett's probably the most famous Michael Schenker fan, because when you listen to Schenker, I reckon my favourite 
album that he plays on is um, Strangers in the Night UFO. He's right. got that whole pre-Malmsteen Euro technique. You know, there's something quite, it's, it's, it's sort of quite classically influenced. Yeah. Um, yeah, serious, serious chops on that guy. I, I always preferred, I would have preferred MSG over the Scorpions. Um, funnily enough, the Scorpions for me are a really overrated band. I, I really don't know why they've had a 50 plus year career. Um, I mean, do you guys have any thoughts on the Scorpions? Nope. I can. Uh, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Anyway, so MSG, perfect timing Probably was one. Location was there, it was the secret to their success. They what, were. Was he Germans? Well, yeah, they, they. I think that's where they're. I mean, they're, they'd be more popular in Europe than they would be anywhere else. I'm sure. No, but around rock, around Rocky, like a hurricane, they were like uh, they were a massive arena act in America. I mean, that's the biggest thing sure. for me. They 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 were they odd. doing their own arena tours in America off the basis oh, yeah. of one song, yeah. and then when yeah, yeah. change came along. Well, the, and well, Wings of Change was a crossover crossover hit for sure. Yeah, no, but no, but back then, Mike, they, they started in the early seventies, and I think they'd just been building America up and up and up. Oh, look, that they had songs like Blackout. Um, Blackout was the right album. Like, if I had to rate a Scorpions album, that's an okay album. Yeah, but I mean, there's um, got to be a hundred bands that had a couple of hits like that that didn't tour arenas. You know, White Lion. Didn't tour yeah. arenas in America, and I think they didn't they headline had, um, arenas. You know, did they? Yeah, headlining you at American arenas, really? But well, Bon Jovi what? opened for them on the seventy eight hundred Fahrenheit uh, tour. Yeah, around right. arenas. Yeah, I mean that'd have been yeah. pre winds of change, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah oh hell yeah, yeah. yeah. It was mid eighties, and look, and don't forget the Scorpions also did that amazing stadium tour that was that went around with Van Halen. Scorpions were next on the bill. Monsters of then Rock. Monsters of Rock. And then it was Dokken, Metallica, Kingdom Come, I think, in that That's order. Right. Kingdom Come were the opener. Metallica were way down there. And then, yeah, going on at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and that was the order. Yep. Jesus. And I think Dokken found it very hard to follow Metallica on a daily basis. I don't think they enjoyed <laughs> they the were, process at all. They were already falling apart, and I think that just – Sped the process up. Yeah. yeah. So those guys, those guys, they never MSG. Uh, I, I think they had minor fame, uh, club band type thing. Uh, they've since reunited, but you know, great band anyway. Great album. Check it out. Your last one, Mike. What's your last last album? Uh, no, I'm out, man. I'm oh. done. Well. I, I'm just going to reel a few more off, um, and I don't need to talk right through them. But I, I, I do. Have I, I told you at the get go, I'm uh, I'm an unarmed man in this fight. Of uh, the only other yeah. ones I sort of had on my list were like, you know, side projects and stuff like that, from which I don't know that qualifies as hidden gems. So, yeah. Um, oh, look, just mine from the era. Um, I was hugely uh, impressed by Vain, No Respect. And it's funny that that album keeps coming up often in metal hammer poles and things like that. Um, all right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they had a song, Beat the Bullet, which was on our TV here. But uh, I, I love that whole album. Um, 
and they've continued to put out albums and things like that. A German band, probably a poor man, Scorpions, called Bonfire, um, talking about how to find hidden gems. I always remember our, uh, our friend Morgan. Um, he uh, he did that one day. I always remember we were at, at um, I always remember we were at uh, Real Groovy Records and found the uh, found the cassette. And he said, "What do you think Empire of this? Slayer?" I said, "You buy that one. I'm Metal Church because I've heard that." And I always remember instantly regretting buying Metal <laughs> Church um, and having to borrow Bonfire <laughs> off them. And um, a little little add-on story about Bonfire. I finally got to see them in London at a place called Camden Underworld. And I was having a beer pre-show and in walked Klaus Hessman or Lessman or something like that, the singer. And I bought him a Guinness and I had a photo taken with him, but on somebody else's phone and the uh, bastard never sent me the photo. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a thing. Um, just quickly, you know, really. Do you want to name and shame that person? I don't know who. The, I don't. It was a stranger. No, was. I, I, I was ah. there watching them on my own that night, and um, it was back in the days when your phones only lasted about three hours. And I remember lifting it up to get the photo, and I was like, "Ah, oh, great, mine's out of battery." And a guy took a photo. Um, yeah, just a couple other ones to throw in there. Uh, Love, hate, blackout in the red room. I've got a memory of us uh, going down to that beach in Howick there, and someone showed me that album. Uh, that came sort of after all those other bands, but just had a almost a Skid Row um, slave to the grind like uh, intensity to it. Um, and lastly, another one of my hidden gems, Magnum Wings of Heaven. Um, and they were a group that, um, yeah, tried to break America, never did. Uh, well, really an English and European band, but certainly big well, enough at the time to, to sell out a Hammersmith, you know. They were quite an anomaly because they were quite British. But, and, and like a lot of bands, they've been around a long time. And yet, yet you, they almost got their hair done for the occasion to try and compete with the prevailing trends yeah. of the day. Mm. Yeah, for sure. You wonder, um, you wonder how many bands around then fell for that trap, you know what I mean? Like, oh, we've got to look like this to do it. And then when it changed overnight, they just got sucked down the plug hole with a bunch of other things and it wasn't really what they were about in the first place. Mm. Yep. I think I think you're bang on. Um, and I think that this was the problem back in the day when you – it's it's an unequal playing field back in the day with music. You know, you had these, you had Armaturtigan who literally was holding these guys by the balls and saying, right, you do it my way or, or you dropped. And, and you know, that the option B feels more like an option Z back in those days, you know? And yeah. I think that's what, that's what many of these bands had no choice. Someone said, this is what you're meant to look like. Uh, go for it. And I don't know. You know, I mean, we always think of, of how Guns N' Roses looked in the Welcome to the Jungle video. I just reckon they got a taste of it and thought, nah, we're not doing this anymore. Maybe Alan Niven, their manager at the time, stood up for them and said, this is not how they're meant to look, you know? Yep. I don't yeah. Know. I mean, don't, don't forget Bruce Dickinson used to wear yellow and black spandex on stage. This is Iron Maiden for the metal. Yeah. The, you know, consider that more a, a fashion um, faux pas as opposed to... I don't True. think they had a wardrobe advisor. No, no, no for sure. <laughs> but, um, well, but that, that's yeah. we've sort of talked about that a little bit before as well. Like, you, you know, our, 
I think our first podcast of did the '90s do the do everyone a favor by killing off hair metal, and we were sitting there going, "Well, do you do you class ACDC and Metallica and all these bands who you know they were involved at that time, and they sort of got themselves into that." frame of mind do you class them as hair metal bands of course you don't because now their legacy has made it bigger but they they jumped in they tried it on for size you know they had a little little go maybe not metallica maybe that's that's a bit rough but no but i've been pantera don't don't forget pantera once i had boofed up here and yeah metal band in the 80s weren't they before they yeah Exactly, and Aerosmith um, Aeros- and Kiss, Kiss fully embraced the the whole hair hair metal thing, you know. Yeah. Hey, just to finish up, Ben, have you got some notable mentions that you want to just throw in there to finish this off? Yeah, I do. There's two. Um, Cheap Tricks self-titled album from 1997. It was put out after they got really glammy and quite watered down. Steve Albini produced it, I think. And it was, it's a killer album. Um, I don't even know if it's available right now. It came out on an indie label, but it shows all their Beatles influences. It's got kick-ass songwriting. Um, and it's easy to confuse with their first album, which was also self-titled. But the self-titled 1997 album is, is it's if you like songs and, and um, Robin Zander's voice, it's definitely worth checking out. I do like have songs. You, have you, have you seen them live, Ben? I do. I've got a funny story. Um, I saw them live in 2014, and I flew from – I had to go to Florida for work, and I flew from here to L.A., and I landed in the morning in Los Angeles. And for some reason, my, the, 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 the scheduling of the flights wasn't great because I had eight hours to kill in the middle of the day in Los Angeles, and I hadn't slept. And I thought, I need to get a day room and just, like, get some sleep just and get crash. a shower. And I couldn't sleep. I remember lying <laughs> in bed just, like, it's 10 in the morning and it's so bright outside even with the curtains drawn. And, and I went, oh, fuck it, I'm in L.A. I'll just get up and caffeinate. And so I did that. I went and bought some running shoes. I did some stuff. I had a guy work for me with me. And then at, like, I don't know, maybe it was 8 or 9 at night, we boarded the flight. So... I hadn't slept in by that stage, I think 36 hours. We caught the overnight flight from Los Angeles to Florida. We got in at 6 a.m. in the morning. And, of course, we couldn't check into our hotel until 2 in the afternoon. By now, I was two nights. (laughs) And I'd had quite a lot of drink on the plane. And I went, oh, what are we going to do? Another place that's really bright. And um, so we went to a, um, a factory outlet store and bought some clothes. Finally got into the room at two o'clock, might have got an hour or two sleep. And I didn't, I bought tickets to see Cheap Trick in Fort Lauderdale that evening. And they were dead cheap tickets. What I didn't realize was how far Fort Lauderdale was from Florida. So we got into the taxi, incurred a hundred dollar taxi bill to drive to what felt like the middle of nowhere. And we get into this beautiful old theater and we've got good seats. But by the time they came on stage, I was just so beside myself with sleep deprivation. I remember just my eyes couldn't stay open. I was falling forward like a drunk man. 
Oh, it's and I funny. seem to remember it was quite a good show, but I, it was like three days into with no sleep, and it was just. Yeah, so yeah. yes, I have seen them. <laughs> no, um, was, I, I was surprised you didn't saw them because they came out New Zealand, Australia, opening for Def Leppard <laughs> a couple of years back. I think it was them and Def Leppard. Yeah, I think you're right. I'd seen them prior to that. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So. There's that. It's a great album. It's definitely worth checking out. Yep. Uh, it's not particularly heavy, but it's it's everything that's cool about Cheap Trick. Yep. Um, and the other one I was going to mention is um, Lenny Kravitz, Mama Said. It's got Slash on a couple of tracks. It's got a cool production. It's got an awesome 70s vibe. And again, it's it's not metal, but it's definitely worth checking out. That's, that's my favourite Lenny Kravitz song of all time, Always on the Run. It's awesome. Yep. Yep, it is. His best best song ever, and it's yeah. got Slash all over it. And as soon as you, you know? hear Slash kick in, you go, oh, "I know who that guy is." Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, so yeah. recognizable. Well, interesting set of um, interesting set of options, and and no crossover, interestingly enough, at all, really. <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah. Unless anyone's got anything to add, I reckon we've uh, we've knocked this one on the head. And of course, anyone that's listening, throw us your suggestions. I did ask my brother actually whether he anyone, anyone at all. Are you listening? Anyone, anyone? Argentina? Are you there? I can't believe no one mentioned the dance exponents. Well, yes, I can actually. I'm just being facetious. Okay. So, so, so well, my, they're, my brother, they're just the exponents now. What do you mean? My my brother came back. He has come back. His five hidden gems were Hold On to 18 by Black and Blue, which is Tommy Thayer's old band, who's now Kiss's guitar player. Kicks Cold Shower. Um, I know very little about the band Kicks. Um, in fact, I don't know if these, I think he's given us, I think he's given me five songs because Dangerous Tonight, is that a Alice Cooper song or album? That's a, a song. song. That's a song. Uh, it's off phone. So he's, he, hey, stupid. That one. So he gave me five songs. He's given me a song by a band called XYZ, uh, yep. which I, I only knew as being their singer uh, was a Frenchman, Terry Alou or Ailou or something like that. Um, and, Scorp and Scorpions Don't Stop at the Top. I don't know what album that's off, uh, but obviously my brother is a Scorpions fan. So a bit yeah. of love for the Scorps out there goes to show. There's something out there for everybody. So, um, and also, uh, one that I, I noticed you didn't mention, Ben, but were you a Wasp fan? Because Wasp should have probably gotten a mention from me. Yeah, but as I've got older, I've just found them increasingly silly. Right. I was just thinking one that should have got a mention and almost got a mention was Coverdale Page. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely, Coverdale Page. And How probably, great is that? It probably ticks boxes for all three of us, and it was yep. just. Mm, yeah. Do, do you know? Do you know what, Ben? I reckon at some point over the last week, I've thought, "Oh yeah, write that down," and I've forgotten to do it. That's and that's the only reason I didn't bring it up because that is a magnificent album. He's threatening to re-release it, do a remix because he's Coverdale's just put out their ninety White Stakes ninety-seven album. Um, too many tears, is it? No. I should know what it is because I just bought it on vinyl and his voice just sounds so good. It's it's almost, it, it's still got that really husky, smoky, but full range about yeah. it. 
What? How old was Jimmy Page when Covered Our Page came out? Fifty. Was he? Mm. Yeah. I um. And how much older is he than Covered Our? Oh, like seven years. I'm going to say. Oh well, that that much older. Okay. Oh look, I, I would agree. Restless in fact, Heart. I think the album Restless Heart. I th- I yeah. think Covered Our Page is one of the great hidden gems. Is yeah. it even a hidden gem? Like, did, did it not get the respect of the time that it deserved? Because all of us loved it. Like, did they do any touring? It, or? They toured a little bit, but I don't think it sold. They toured Japan, and then they sort of well. put the kibosh on it, and Jimmy went back to do No Quarter with Robert Plant. Well, because it was the whole thing, right? Because Jimmy had basically written a lot of that album, and he called Robert <laughs> Plant up and said, come and do this with me, and Robert Plant said no. Is that how it came about? I think, oh, geez, I mean, I might be speaking out of school here, but I think that's what it was. And so he went and um, found Coverdale, and they coll- and it might have changed a great deal once Coverdale got involved. I don't think it was. But then Robert Plant got his nose out of joint about it, going, I said no. And so you went and found a Robert Plant clone, which is a very uh, unceremonious way to deal with David Coverdale, I would think. But that's kind of what inspired No Quarter was because, you know, Robert just went, oh, no, when, when I'm ready, and Jimmy went, well, no, nah, fuck, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And so that kind of got Robert Plant off his ass, and they went and did um, No Quarter. Well, they're two very different albums, though. Uh, Super uh, different. Memory. Yeah. Well, because No Quarter it, it inevitably brings that legacy in, and they've got a thing. Both um, Page and Coverdale were on the same record label. Geffen and someone yeah, sure. suggested they get together. Um, but they did some shows in Japan. But yeah, I mean, even that you can find YouTube footage, but you would have thought it would have been more. I don't know. It, 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 in hindsight, well, again, it should have been much bigger than it was. It should have, yeah, because it's a huge album. And, and um, you know, I, I had friends of mine who weren't particularly big hard rock fans that we'd, we'd sort of get together for a drink on a Friday night and they would put it on. You know, it wouldn't be me doing it. It would be them putting what, that out. First on. song? Uh, what, was, what was the first song? The doodle um, Oh, hang on. I can hear it. Yeah, yeah. me too. Shake my tree. Shake my, Shake my tree. tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is one of the great, uh, in fact, I'm going to have a listen to that before we, uh, yeah, after we finish it today. That is one of the great starts of an album. And look, yeah. arguably, creatively, he's not done an awful lot since then, really, has he? Or, I mean, creatively. Page. Which, which here yeah, we talk Page. Page hasn't put out an album since 98. Hmm. Like he toured with the Black Crows after that. And he's, yeah. He's to be fair, he's what, he's what, 80 odd now, isn't he? He's one of those blokes who periodically says, yeah, I'm going to work on new music, but then, you know, another reissue campaign pops up or... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Someone well, look, gives think, him half a billion dollars to put Led Zeppelin on at the O2, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think we finish up there, boys, and, and um, you know, I think it was a, a cool discussion, some interesting things. I, I was surprised that I didn't hear a Keith Richards expensive Winos album thrown out there by you, Ben, but... Um, yeah. Part of it was just what popped into my head at the time. Well, there you have it, folks. There were the hidden gems of Mike, Ben, and myself. 
you've got any uh, hidden gems that you want to share with us, by all means, throw them down in the comments. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next week. Stars and palm trees, M16 awaits you. A man.